Hi friends, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald. I am a PhD trauma researcher and a life coach, and it's my goal in life to change the way that we define and understand and treat trauma. Here's why. Trauma is not actually a sign of weakness or disorder. It's a biological response born of strength. Without it, we would not survive. So I think the first step towards healing is being able to see this so that we can stop shaming ourselves for being human. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal. We bring together my research with our lived experiences so that we can all better understand and cope with trauma. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee and join us. Hey, hello. I don't know what episode this is. 13? 13. Yeah. That's exciting. 13. Um, I know. We have a, we're going to call this rewind where we have stuff from last week that we want to just touch base on before we jump into the stuff from this week. Do you want to go first? Sure. I feel like I keep bringing up the Mind Body Institute at, I thought it was Beth Israel Hospital. It's actually at Mass General Hospital. And so I just wanted to give a little background on this uh, program. I had a therapist uh, for a long time wonderful, wonderful therapist. And she recommended this program to me when I was, um, I want to say it was probably 2006 mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, grieving like crazy for dad. And um, there was this program at the Mind Body Institute where you would go once a week, um, one evening for a couple hours. And I think it was eight weeks, but I wanted to just kind of explain their mission a little bit and what they are. Um, And this is directly from their website. It's now called um, the Benson Henry Institute for Mind Body Medicine at Mass General Hospital. And um, their mission is to fully integrate mind body medicine into mainstream healthcare, as well as throughout the country and the world. And the founder of this is Dr. Herbert Herbert Benson. He, He was one of the earliest pioneers in the field of mind body medicine. He was a cardiologist in the late 1960s, and he and his colleagues established a scientific basis for the mind-body connection at his alma mater, which was Harvard Medical School, by studying the effect of stress on blood pressure. At the time, the idea that stress could affect physical health was contrary to existing medical thought, and he coined the term the relaxation response. It just goes on to explain a little bit Um, in the very room at Harvard Medical School where Walter B. Cannon had discovered the body's fight or flight response 50 years earlier, Dr. Benson and Robert Keith Wallace discovered its opposite. And they studied uh, meditation and how meditation reduced metabolism, the rate of breathing, heart rate, and brain activity. Um, And he labeled this the relaxation response. And that's the foundation of mind-body medicine practice at this program. Um, I know. Isn't that amazing? It's so, it's so like hopeful to hear about stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And he was really like at the forefront of it. And he, you know, I remember the program focusing pretty heavily on meditation, but also breaking it down and that it didn't have to be the, you know, go into a room and sit on a pillow for half an hour. It was when you're driving in the car, take 10 deep breaths, you know, So they they broke down um, ways to do it uh, that were accessible and not intimidating. And that was also the first place that I heard, and I know I shared this in an earlier podcast, you have to seriously limit the number of times you revisit a traumatic event because mm-hmm. your body doesn't know the difference. 
between totally. the memory and the actual event. Yeah. So, you know, I feel really lucky that I was exposed to this, you know, in 2006 and that, it, that my therapist recommended it and um, kind of planted these seeds and it, it was a great program that's still happening. And um, so I just, I wanted to explain a little bit more about it because I keep referring to it. Yeah. We should put up um, resources on our website, links and stuff too. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Have you ever listened to the uh, podcast 10% Happier? No. With Dan Harris. He wrote a book called 10% Happier, How I Teamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, A True Story. And it's all about exactly what you just said, like how he came from being this person of like, and I don't know if he was, I don't know if he went to the Mind Body Institute or, you know, but he interviews people on the podcast who are in that meditation world and they kind of demystify meditation and bring it to the, to, to, to real life. So you can like actually do it instead of like, yeah, this website talks about, you know, and uh, talks about exercise as meditation, you know, knitting as meditation, walking as meditation. It doesn't, it's not the monks in a room, you know, situation. There's many different ways you can do it. Dan Harris was like a newscaster, wasn't he? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I believe I could be getting a story wrong. We'll talk about it next week if I am. that he started struggling with like panic attacks on air. That sounds right. And that's why he, um, he, he kind of fell into this world of meditation and it changed his life. But I love the like 10% happier. Like it's, it's not going to fix everything. It's just like, this is how to get a, 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 a different kind of foundation, you know? Yeah. It's, it's tools. It's tools right. for the toolbox. Right. Exactly. That's, that's it. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I want to look more into it. I don't know much about it at all. Cool. It's super cool. And I'm sure everyone thought he was crazy at that time. Oh, totally. I love yeah. that when people are like willing to go into that stuff anyway, even though everyone around them is like, what are you right. doing? You know? Right. Right. And they talk about having like a three prong approach, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the first being surgery, the second being pharmaceuticals and the third being the mind body connection I love and that. how all of those are, you know, equally important. So you're not discounting one for, for the other. Right. Which is, I think where we go wrong. Cause we're like, okay, this works. And then I'm going to not do any of this stuff. Or now I'm going to swing to this side and this side works. And I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Like both, both, both. Right. Cool. Um, and the thing I wanted to return to was the, the phantom limb syndrome stuff, which is like, cause I don't think I remembered the name of the guy who um, did all this research. It's VS Ramachandran. Um, I could be mispronouncing that, but that's how I've heard it. He's a neuroscientist. He's written a couple of books that are cool and really accessible, um, but he developed the mirror box, which is what we were talking about last time, mirror therapy, where you use a mirror to sort of trick your brain into doing something different with a limb that's either immobile or not, no longer uh, has been amputated. So yeah. So his books are um, Phantom in the Brain, Phantoms in the Brain, sorry, that was in 1998. A Brief Tour of Human Consciousness in 2004, and then The Telltale Brain, which I have not. That's such a cool title, but I haven't looked at that one. That's from 2011. He also has a TED Talk. So if you're interested in that, you can watch the TED Talk and it's um, amazing. Brains are cool. (laughs) That's such a fascinating con. I still can't get over that. I know. It's wild, right? It really is. And I think like going back to what you were just saying a minute ago about trauma, like we... Um, and limiting your access to a traumatic memory, we we think of our brain as one thing, right? But there are parts of our brain that are more and less sophisticated. And the part of your brain that recognizes threat is less sophisticated. And so we expect it to do things it can't do. 
like recognize yeah. the difference between a memory and a current threat, which it can't when it's that activated. Um, it's just, yeah, I think getting some knowledge about that. I don't think we focus enough on psychoeducation, getting some knowledge about that and what that means is so helpful. Cool. Okay. Okay. So um, do you want to jump into the letter? Sure. So this letter starts, hello, anyone willing to listen? Thank you, MC and Elizabeth, for creating a place for me to exist and create a bigger community. I'm in my mid-20s, trying to unpack childhood and adolescent trauma that I experienced. However, can only register trauma in hindsight. I grew up early and fast. And frankly, I could tell you everyone else's version of the way I grew up, except for my own. I still struggle with codependency, and I'm realizing I struggle with addiction in more ways than one, which shatters the blueprint I had for myself. I'm learning self-compassion is my biggest strength and has been so uncomfortable, almost fake feeling. I am absorbing so much self-help knowledge, but I seem to be noticing more qualities that I don't like the more I drop into my body. I have noticed how avoidant I truly am lately and my numbing strategies I, I unconsciously shame myself for. I moved to a new state and started a new job that does not pay enough, but is emotionally fulfilling which feels like a byproduct of a capitalistic society amongst the ever-increasing wage gaps. Nonetheless, it's a step in a good direction for me, I think. I moved away from my biggest support system and I miss them dearly, not realizing how physically deprived I've become. I'm making the best of my new community, which consists of two roommates that give me a deeper understanding of the beautiful differences and similarities I can see in the world. But in all honesty, they were strangers before we started living together, and now we are all working from home. Amongst all of these changes, I have begun my own feminine journey as well. I have been on various forms of hormonal birth control for the last nine years, starting at age 15. While I'm really happy that I've made it this far without a child, I'm concerned it has made a bit bigger impact on my life than what I realized, or potentially has been a band-aid to the anxiety and depression that I can now only see clearly in hindsight. Due to the move and lack of insurance, and let's be honest, plain curiosity of my natural cycle, I chose to not use hormonal birth control. It's been years since I have had physical symptoms of a cycle, and I'm wondering how my hormones have affected my journey physically and mentally. I'm starting to have more bad days than good. The more work I do, it seems like the more unstable I feel. I realize I cannot grow in isolation. But when isolation feels like the safer option, it's hard for me to know where the cycle ends versus where the spiral begins. The more I feel comfortable absorbing an idea, the more confused I feel about myself. For me, self-awareness isn't enough. It's only the beginning. Please speak freely about anything that sparks your brain. I write a new letter every week and seemingly lose interest or get distracted before I can finish with all the things I want to say. I used to be a good writer, and now I feel... Like all I do is vomit heavy words in a sporadic manner. Sincerely, just finish the damn letter. We need to talk about labels and we need to talk about self-compassion. Radical hormones self and hormones and hormones. <laughs> and hormones yeah. I have to open my desk drawer. This is going to be super loud. Hold on. I had this quote um, that I said when teaching and I, you know, you do this thing when you're like teaching and you're, you kind of like leave your body and you don't know what you're saying, you know? Yeah. So sometimes my students will like reflect back things that I've said. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I said that. I said that, but this, you'll know it's me. There's no way this has been <laughs> changed. Self-compassion is not the dipping sauce. It's the chicken nuggets. <laughs> 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 uh, 
February 3rd, 2021. That should be the title of your book. (laughs) (laughs) It will be at some point. It's going to be the title of something. I also apparently said, spend 15 minutes a day imagining what else the fuck. Oh, I like that. What else the fuck? Which is, I said that to somebody yesterday too. Um, I, I wrote down while you were talking that a list of the labels that this, in this relatively short letter, this person called themselves traumatized, addicted, avoidant, numbing, subject to capitalistic society, i.e. victim of a capitalistic society, subject to various aspects of being female, i.e. victim of being female, unstable and an unreliable narrator. That's, wait, I can't count. One, two, three, four. That's eight things in a short letter that you called yourself. Let's talk about that. I want you to do this thought experiment if you're listening and you're labeling yourself, because this is something that we, this is true to the letter writer, but this is also true of all of us because we are running around with little bits and fragments of knowledge and slapping labels on ourselves that basically just limit us in all directions. And then we wonder why we can't grow. Um, it's yeah. like, I'm trying to think of a good like analogy. It's like if you were a plant and you had all these like potential buds and you put like little clips on each one of them and stuck the plant in a box. And then you were like, I don't understand why it's not growing. Well, you're not giving it anything that it needs. That's why. Right. Um, but okay. So think about this. I want you to like write down all of the labels that you call yourself. So that's true if you're listening or if you're the letter writer. So there might be other labels that the letter writer is saying. And just sort of notice as you do that, how you feel in your body when you're writing that list. So I am avoidant. I am a Scorpio. I am codependent. Oh, I forgot codependent. There's nine things. I am an addict. I am right. Any of these things. How does that feel? Does that cause like restriction or pain or tightening or anything? Like, where's that in your body? What does that exercise feel like? And just sort of sit with that for a few minutes. I'm tempted to like just put music now so that people can actually do it. But but seriously, it's a good exercise. Pause, yeah. Pause this and go do that. And then unpause. And now I want you to write a list of a hundred other things you are because those some of those labels might be true. Some of them you might not be able to remove, right? Addiction is a thing that, you know, once you've got that, that's not something you can just peel off and pretend like it isn't true. Um, but these are not the only things about you. And I think it's really powerful to notice what else you are and then pause and take notice of how that feels in your body. And a hundred sounds like a lot and it's daunting. Do it anyway, because you'll find yourself finding more than you would. You'll mine, you know, for your, for what else you are and you'll find silly things. And then you'll, you'll laugh about that and you'll find things that are not tragic, you know? Right. I'm, I'm a friend. I'm a daughter. I'm a student. I'm a sister. I'm a right. very neutral. Right. I am right. someone who likes cookies. I drive a Subaru, whatever it is like right. that those things are um, neutral, positive, funny. You know, I did this exercise with a group once and they, um, I said, just write, write down labels that you associate with. I didn't say negative things. I said, write down labels you associate with it can be anything. And then the group shared and everyone listed the things and not a single person said a single positive thing about themselves. You know what this is so reminding me of is the thing you told me to watch on Netflix oh, or on Hulu. Yes. What's the name of it? Uh, in and of itself, Derek Delgardio or something. In and of itself. Something like that. Because watch I think that. that. I don't want to say anything else about it. Just go watch it. And like, God damn it. Watch it. Like. <laughs> I know. Right Mac now. told me to watch it and I didn't watch it for like, what, a month? <laughs> we could go back and see. 
<laughs> but like, I did eventually. Did. And I, I texted you immediately and said how blown away I was. You did. Totally. Um, Derek Delgadio. Delgadio? It's, yeah, just go watch that. But it was interesting because everyone was like, I was like, guys, I, I didn't say to, to say to say negative things. I said to write labels you associate yourself with. And everyone yeah. wrote it. And everyone was like, oh my God, no one said anything positive about themselves. And then they started saying positive things about each other and saying like, oh wait, but I know, you know, she said that she's this, but I know her to be this way. We are limiting ourselves. The story that you're telling yourself about yourself is limiting you. Right. Is that self-awareness? Which part? What do you mean? Well, I feel like the letter writer is saying I'm self-aware, but it's, but it's hurting me. Yeah. You're hurting yourself. I don't think that's self-aware. I think that's self-flagellating, you know? Right. You're so it's not self-awareness because you're not, you're not getting, you're not embracing the full picture. Right. Exactly. Totally. It's not self-awareness. So I, you know, what strikes me about every person who's written in is that I, I, first of all, I don't think you would write a letter to something like this unless you were on a self-aware journey, self-awareness journey. Totally. Right. I, I don't think you'd be part of this club or interested in listening unless you were part of that club. Right. And I am honestly so impressed every single time at all of the things that these people are doing mm -hmm. to better themselves, oh, to learn more, to grow, to I develop, yeah. to be self-aware. Right. And also the way that they beat themselves up yeah. about not being where they think they need to be. Yeah. I, I wish that everyone could just focus on being in the club because yeah. wanting to be part of this club means you're you're already doing the work right just by showing up yeah and can you be kinder to yourself for just showing up yep. it's such a huge thing you're right like i cuz here's could could we could we eliminate this part of the work i'm putting this in quotes the work like beating yourself up right that's not the same as noticing self awareness is noticing non-judgmentally what's going on here is that me is that somebody else is that some other narrative what's going on yeah. You know, like it's not judging and saying, well, I did these nine things, but I didn't do the 10th. And so I'm a failure, you know? Right. What about the nine things? Can we celebrate the nine things? Yeah. Can we celebrate even being interested in this journey? Yeah. 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 Because there's a whole bunch of assholes who are out there not interested in the journey, making everyone else's lives miserable. Yep. 100%. <laughs> Blaming all their stuff on other people instead of on themselves. Right. And I, I don't mean to be sound frustrated. I just, I wish. No, I think the frustration. Myself included could be, yeah. would be kinder to ourselves. The, the, I think that the, the, um, the frustration comes from empathy because it's like, and I, and I, I'm fired up because I had too much coffee, but I, and also because I've been seeing, I see this in this letter writer, but also all over the place where people are like, well, I'm this and I'm that and I'm the other thing. And therefore what that means is I can never grow. I can never have what I want. I always have to hold myself back. I'll never be enough, do enough, know enough, all of these things, you know? Right. And we're missing our lives when we do that to ourselves. Yeah. And that's not, that's not okay, you know? Yeah. And I think that like, with this is, yeah, we need a revolution. I, so I, the reason why I want to talk about self-compassion. The reason why I said that it's not the dipping sauce, it's the chicken nuggets. It's is because I, at one point I was like, Oh, you know, I think we need to talk about self-compassion when we're talking about trauma. Let's just like tack this on <laughs> as like a little post-it note. Hey, FYI, 
remember to be nice to yourself. And then I was like, oh shit. Like if you can't be nice to yourself, if you can't look at your story with compassion for yourself, you can't grow, you will hit a plateau and, Mm -hmm. and maybe you need to hang at that plateau for a while. That's totally fine. But if you want to really like blast through that ceiling of healing, you have to learn how to be nice to yourself. And it's hard. Um, We're not wired that way. No, our brain is, we, I always say this over and over and over again, we manually imprint the negative because our brains are wired to protect us. And so (laughs) if you, if you're noticing the negative, then you're in protection mode and your brain, the primitive part of your brain thinks, cool, this is what we're supposed to do. You have to manually imprint the positive. If you don't do that, your brain won't do it for you. And, but once you do your whole outlook can change. Right. And when your outlook changes, your life can change. You know, there's that, um, oh, it's not, who is the poet? Oh, it's Rilke. You must change your life. Start there. Because, and here's the other thing. If we're being mean to ourselves, we will always encounter other people who are being mean to us and we will let it happen. Right. And so a lot of the times people, a lot of the time people will be like, why am I in this negative situation again at work or in a relationship or with a friendship? Why am I letting myself be taken advantage of? I mean, there's lots to that question, but part of it is that you don't know what it means to be nice to you. That's your, that's your resting point. You tolerate the way you speak to yourself. So of course you're attracting that or you might be attracting that. Or, or just, you're not even, it, it's, I don't like the attraction stuff. Cause it feels like it's, you're pulling it in, but Got I think it. it's more that you, you're not noticing that it's there because it feels familiar. Right. And so you're not like, wait a second, that was an asshole thing to say. Don't talk to me like that. Yeah. Because you don't even, that wouldn't even occur to you because you're talking to yourself like that. You know what I mean? Right. You teach people how to treat you, but that right. starts with how you treat yourself. Exactly. A hundred percent. I was talking to somebody yesterday about that. Like, you know. Um, the, the being able to kind of, uh, I'm trying to like think of how to say it without like identifying the person, um, being able to pinpoint kindness is a skill that we need to hone. And it's important in, in, in every aspect of our life. Like, do you know what I mean? I feel like we, we feel like what we need to be doing, the work that we need to be doing is bracing for unkindness when it happens, but we also need Mm -hmm. to recognize kindness when it happens because we're missing it. Yeah. You know? And like, yeah, it's, is this person being kind to me? Is it, that is a question that is absolute bare minimum. And that's true. If it's a coworker, if it's someone you're in a business agreement with, if it's a partner, if it's yourself, you know, it's a price of admission. Totally. Okay. So we'll, let's circle back to, to compassion, but I want to kind of just go through some of these things. Cause I didn't just list them off to, to shame the, the letter writer. I don't mean to shame you at all. I just want you to start gently like peeling at these labels or at least noticing what else you are in addition to. So there's some trauma from childhood. Um, I think what I would do there is try to pinpoint that, you know, growing up fast, what did that mean exactly for you? And in what way was it overwhelming for you? Right. I think so often when we use the trauma label, we um, it's becoming sort of a way of bypassing the, the diving in the archeological work that is required, you know? So you're traumatized by your childhood. That's a great place to start, but how? Because diving into that, doing that dig, that archeological dig and finding what it is that you didn't get that you needed is super important data for the rest of your life. 
And that could pinpoint like how the relationships, it sounds like the letter writer is like, had has these relationships that feel vaguely empty, but this might give you data about exactly how and then what to do about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. What you might've missed. Right. What you're looking for. Right. What you need as a unique, beautiful individual, you know? Right. Right. And then you give yourself permission to ask for it. Right. But if I just say I'm traumatized by my childhood and that's the end of the story, that's a feature about my identity going forward. And I don't do anything about it, which also means I don't know it. Right. Which goes back to the question about like, is this actually self-awareness? Right. Not if you don't know. And she might, I don't know. You know, it could be that she's just not, she didn't know where to start. And so she didn't unpack all of that, but I would kind of find that out. I also, okay, so the three things, addicted, avoidant, and numbing, right? I'm teaching a class that's basically like abnormal psychology right now. And I've probably said this before, but we need to, um, it's, I think this is a conversation every human needs to have right now. Um, But when my students start reading things, entries in the DSM, they start seeing themselves in every personality disorder and every disorder in the DSM. They think they have everything and they're super worried. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh shit. Okay. I knew I had anxiety, but I have these features of depression. And I had this one thing that I did this one time. And this means I have borderline. And then this other thing, clearly I'm manic because I stayed up all night and it's like, okay, these are simply tendencies. They are things that human beings do in situations in order to survive and cope and, and go through them. Right. So have we, and I, I'll, especially when we talk about addiction in class, cause it's college, we, I, I kind of push the students to say like, okay, here's what substance use def- disorder is defined as in the DSM. Let's all be candid if you feel comfortable about who has behaved in these ways, right? So is it true that a hundred percent of the people in this classroom, myself included, have substance use disorder? No, we have engaged in tendencies and it's important to recognize them as tendencies and right. not fixed traits. Avoidant, numbing, and addicted, none of those are fixed traits about any human. Right. Especially as long as you're alive, right? You have capacity to change any of those things. Yeah. You know? So the question there is, can you go into those moments in your past and even in the present where you're finding yourself leaning on those tendencies and figure out what it is? Do you learn to numb when you're super lonely? Do you become avoidant when you're so, so overwhelmed by stress that you can't connect, you know, do you behave in addictive manner when your stress has been going on for so long that your numbing doesn't work anymore? And so you need a substance to numb again, all of that is important self-awareness and knowledge that gives you data, right? But reducing yourself to the tendency as if it's a fixed quality of your personality, isn't knowing it's judging those are different. I was just going to say judgment. Yep. Yeah. Cause I can think of it a thousand times in my life where a, you could call me avoidant. I've actually been playing with that term in particular lately over the past like couple of years and being like, okay, am I avoidant? Like what is, what's going on here? And again, like I always say, we need more nuance. There are situations in which I become avoidant. When I become avoidant, it is a really important indicator light for me about what's going on in the situation. If I just say I'm an avoidant human, what, that's just deflating. What does that mean? Yeah, you don't. That, that's that's not what you present with. You don't walk into every situation uh, avoidant, trying to. You know, you right. your the avoidance comes out of 
a particular set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's not what you lead with. It's not, you know, it's not a, a tattoo on your forehead. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm avoidant. It's the only important thing about me. That's by the way, what trauma does. It tricks you into thinking it's the most important thing about you. Right. And so I'm beginning to think that labeling ourselves and maybe the whole self-help movement is becoming like a little traumatizing for folks. I think it is right now. Yeah. Let's recognize I, ourselves in these things and then, and then begin, you know? Right. What were you going to say? 10 different things, but it, it, yeah, I, I go back to, and I mentioned this before when we talked about, when we've talked about mom and dad, when I said to Luke in the middle of Pottery Barn, like, am I always going to be a sad person? Right. Am I a sad person now? Am I a sad person? Yeah. Right. And he said, no, you're going to be sad about this. Right. Do, do I, you know, we just, we can't. But I, to your point, you know, we're in the middle of a lengthy, stressful yeah. situation. Yeah. And to try to wrestle with all the self-help stuff right now, yeah. I don't think is necessarily wise for uh, some people. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean... I I was saying this the other day, like I am in my head. I'm very comfortable in my head. Like I can hang there for a really long time, (laughs) but I am in my head too much right now. And I've been in my head too much and it's super destructive. Like nothing good comes from that. Yeah. Cause you start like pulling things apart in a way that's like just for the sake of destruction, you know? Right. Oh yeah. And it's not, um, it's not, you know, helpful. And I think like this, the other thing though, is that like in the example that you just said, that there's a great like co-regulation that's happening because when, when you talk to Luke about that, because it's like, okay, there's that franticness in, am I, am I going to be sad forever? Am I going to, there's two layers there, right? There's the grief. And then there's the anxiety about the grief. And those are both important. The anxiety about the grief is judgment about the grief. The grief just is. Mm-hmm. And you're in your head and you're spinning around and saying, I'm always going to be sad. I'm always going to be sad, which starts to look like a spiral. I'll never have a life. I'll always be sad. I'll, but whatever that spiral looks like for you. And so you question somebody that you trust, like, what, what do I do with this? Am I always going to be sad? Am I always going to be sad? That's the anxiety speaking. And then they co-regulate with you and say yes and no, right? You'll always be sad, but only about this. So I'm addressing, he's addressing your anxiety and your grief at the same time using the part of his brain that you don't have access to in the moment, which is that rational piece. Ah, I love that. Right? Yeah. So if you're going to do the self-help stuff, cool. Could you not do it like locked in your bedroom by yourself in the dark with no one else? Right. You know? Right. Not coming up for air. Yeah. Right. I was listening to um, my favorite murder and (laughs) they were, Georgia was talking about it's uh, Georgia heart stuck. And Karen Kilgara. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) We love their podcast. Listen to it all the time. But Georgia was saying that, and they're very open and they talk about mental health and, you know, therapy and lots of things. But Georgia was telling, wanted to take a, like a pandemic vacation, like go to like an Airbnb with her husband, just go, go to a different space, you know, because we've all been in the same space for so long. And she said that her therapist said to her, yes, do that but do not take any self-help books. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. stop it. Like really give yourself a vacation mm-hmm. from the, the self-help at this point. Totally. And that's, and, and like, it's okay to do that again. Like I get in trouble for saying this, 
because it sounds ominous, but it's hopeful. I mean it in a hopeful way. Whatever the shit is happening, we'll wait for you. If you need to take a break, just hit pause and it's just going to hang there and be, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to power through this as fast as possible. Like you're on fire, you know? (laughs) Right. It's if you because need, you have more free time right now, right? Right. If you need to walk away from that project, if if that's what's happening in your body that you're getting so activated by it, listen to that. That's healing. Yeah. There's power in in um, being able to recognize that and and letting go of things, like doing mm-hmm. less. Yeah. You know, you know that I started um, a, a yoga journey during this pandemic, mm-hmm. and you know I got to the point where. I, I was like you described earlier, I'm already in my head all the time. That's my nature. That's the way I'm wired. Yeah. And this yoga was just this study of yoga was too much in my head. Yeah. And it was becoming um not helpful. Right. And it wasn't feeling good. And I remember saying to you, I, you know, I no, I'm I'm not looking forward to it. I don't want I don't want to do this. Yeah. And so I stopped doing it. Right. You know, and yoga is something that everyone says you're supposed to do. And I, I'm not saying I'm not going to come back to it someday. I might, but right. it wasn't the right fit for me right now. Yeah. And that felt good. It didn't feel like I was giving up or quitting. It felt right. like, oh, I'm making a decision based on how my body feels. Right. Because your sister told you to. <laughs> and because my sister told me to. And she's always right about my life. <laughs> But like, I think that that's, it's such a tricky thing. Like if we look at the analogy of the, the toolbox, right? Like, because any tool can be used as a weapon, right? Yeah. You can yeah. take your hammer and out of your, you know, toolbox and you can hit someone over the head with it, or you can build a house, right? Like, <laughs> you can be used, yoga can be used as a weapon. You can beat yourself up about it. You can, you know, fixate on doing the perfect handstand or whatever the fuck, like you can, you can use it as a weapon. And and so you have to, the, the bigger thing, the, the key that unlocks the toolbox is the, the self-awareness again, of knowing like what tools you need in what circumstances and, and not judging yourself for that. Yeah. And they're surprising. They're those tools can be very surprising. Totally. But they won't be available to you. You won't be able to unlock that toolbox if you're judging yourself for them. Right. Sometimes the tool is going for a walk and pushing yourself a little further than you would have the day before. Sometimes the tool is lying on the floor for 15 minutes and kicking and screaming. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the tool is ice cream. Sometimes it's kale. Like it's, it's never kale for me. (laughs) I hate kale. (laughs) We do it differently in California. I used to hate kale too. (laughs) Oh God. Okay. Chicken nuggets, always a tool. <laughs> that is always a tool. <laughs> but see how like self-compassion is, is operative even there. If you're judging yourself about your tool. So this is, so going back to the question, like of self-help, like what do we mean by that? We don't, we're not like minding our diction enough. It starts me crazy. Like, what do we mean by self-help? Do we mean beating ourselves up in the corner about all the ways that we've potentially failed for, you know, and shaming ourselves for just being human? Or are we actually listening to what our bodies are saying and giving it what it needs, you know? Yeah. That's self-help. We just need to revolutionize it. No big deal. <laughs> well, it's not, pun- we just, we're in such a punitive place. Mm-hmm. We're in such a punitive world. And it's mm-hmm. just this, these things just keep getting added on these. I'm not doing enough. I'm not enough. I'm, you know, it's just, it's overwhelming. Totally. 
And listen, that, that, that yoga journey, that was a long time that I was not feeling like great. So it's not, I I don't know any more than anyone else. And I'm no better at this than anyone else. You know, it's, we're, we all do it in different ways for different reasons. hundred percent. I still have to have the conversation with myself because I label certain things as like, these are good self-help and these are like less good self-help. And so when I need to go take a really long walk and get really sweaty and exhausted, I'm like, oh, that's good self-help. And when I need to lie on the couch and watch the Gilmore girls, it's like, oh, that's less good. And I have to, I I have to continue the recalibration because every time I do that, I'm like, you know, I have to imprint to myself. No, this is what you needed. You're listening to yourself. You did it. It felt great. Good for you. None of this judgment allowed. Yeah. And tomorrow maybe you'll take a walk and it's neither, you know, that can be a weapon too. Yeah. Right. Beating yourself up physically. And like, it it goes back to my point too, that if you're in this club, if you're listening, if you're writing letters, if you want to be self-aware or help yourself, you've already accomplished more than most. Totally. Celebrate that. Yeah. You don't sound unstable to me. No, you sound very caring and compassionate and aware and empathetic and all the things. And you had a lot, you've got a lot going on. Can we talk about hormones for a second? Oh, Jesus Christ. Hormones are not a joke. <laughs> They're not a joke. And I have That's... been like brought to my knees by them. And, 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 okay. So I'm trying to think about like how to, how to say this. I, um, I was on, so I'll get personal, but not too personal. So you don't feel like you need to fast forward or whatever. Um, I was on a medication for migraine, uh, prevention that caused me to gain weight. And when you gain weight, it throws, it can potentially throw off your hormones. And so mm-hmm. I had all sorts of wacky stuff going on. My hormones were not normal. Nothing. My cycle was not normal. It was just, everything was out of whack. And so I went to the doctor and they said, oh, well, this is, you just have to get off this medication and lose weight. This is the only problem. Did that went off the medication, lost weight, nothing changed. My hormone levels were out of whack because I was in the most stressful experience of my entire life. And I was not dealing with the stress in any way. It was just taking itself out of my body. And once I got out of that situation, my hormones Mm self-regulated. And that is something that the doctors weren't even aware of. You know what I mean? Like I know a lot more now about hormones and stress levels and all that stuff from burnout and all this other work, but like the, the doctors are like, Oh, it's your fault. It's your problem. Your hormone levels are your problem. And, you know, or if you complain about what they're doing to you, it's, you know, that's your, it's your unique and you, you know, you're too sensitive or whatever the hell, you know, no, you're probably stressed out in addition to all the hormone changes that are happening, which are very real. The stress response system operates on hormones. Cortisol is a hormone. Norepinephrine (laughs) is a hormone. All these things are like, that's the same response system. And you're going through this change of being on birth control for your, basically your whole adult life from, from like 15, she said. Yes. To now. So that's going to take probably, I don't, we're, we're not doctors in this way. Right. Like I won't even say a number, a long time to regulate. And if you're stressed, which you are right, that will interrupt that transition. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Oh, absolutely. That is, uh, that's science, you know? Yeah. Even though the doctors don't know, that is science right. that those levels will affect so many different parts of your brain and your body and right. you you know your mood. It's right. you, you have to respect that. You totally. have to respect that you are making big changes yep. 
for, for your personal reasons. And, you know, that's, that cannot be negated. Totally. Just to even say how extreme this was, they were like, Hey, we think you might not have ovaries. They thought I didn't have ovaries and this had gone on my whole life and no one knew. So they did an ultrasound to see if I had ovaries. (laughs) Jesus Christ. And that was the quicker explanation than maybe you're so stressed. Your hormone levels are out of whack because of this chronic stress, which is exactly what chronic stress does to your hormone levels. Wow. But they were like, no, it must be this other crazy thing, you know, which. Yeah. Everyone has their own lens of looking at things, you know. Totally. And the, you know, the, the, we talk about the research, but the research and practicing medication medicine are two different things. Yeah. So the, the, we know this in the research and have for a very long time. That doesn't mean individual physicians know that. I don't know. Do you have anything else to add about hormones there? I feel like I, you know, like <laughs> they scare me a little bit because they're so like, you know, I feel like they're so fickle and like, I, you know, it's such a moving target for so many people, you know, at any different point in your life that, um, I, I just, I feel like they are something that need to be respected and, um, they scare me. It's scary. (laughs) Go to a, go to a doctor that like specializes and listens to you and figure out what's going on there and, and get an idea. There's a lot of ways you can, um, intervene on the way that hormones, are responding in your body, especially, you know, estrogen and things by, by your diet and exercise. So there are ways that you can learn how to regulate things that don't involve like medication, right? You just, you need a a doctor who's actually going to listen. There's just so much information out there. It's really hard to wade through it all. I believe And for me, you know, in my own journey, and I'm not, I'm not trying to judge the letter writer at all. It, I think because mom scared us so much about like hormones and birth she control and stuff that like birth control, she was like a conspiracy. Theory. <laughs> she was. So I think I'm like a little, uh, you know, I, 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 it makes Did me a little twitchy. Yeah. yeah. When I think about it, <laughs> it's like, don't say the H word. Right. <laughs> oh my God. Mm-hmm. Don't talk about it. Maybe they'll go away. Right. Um, there's just, and once you start digging and start looking up articles, you get fed these other articles and then you go down the rabbit hole. And then it's, you know, in the past year, I was going to, one of the reasons I started the yoga journey is because I, you know, I turned 50 and I was convinced that I was going to be entering menopause. So I thought, okay, I'm going to like do it. I'm going to read, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to take a natural approach. I'm going to do all the things. Um, (laughs) and I had no, I have no symptoms of menopause at all. None, you know? Not one. I mean, I recently went to the doctor like a couple of weeks ago and I exp- expressed my concern and worry. And she said, okay, well, let's do a test and find out if you're in menopause. Of course I'm not, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I got so nervous and worried right. about, you know, a- anticipating it right. that I made myself crazy. Right. Well, so. and that's such an interesting, it's a, again, that's like a, you're using sort of like health like in putting that in quotes as like a weapon, right? So right. Like you're, you already knew on a body, on the body level that, that you're not in this stage yet. And so you don't need to worry about it, but instead of trusting your body and having like an, <laughs> a, a, you know, a, a trusting open relationship with your body, you like are like, Nope, this must be wrong. I have to go do X, Y, and Z, you know, and beat yeah. myself up about, about it and judge myself. And it's, you know what I mean? Like, 
Yeah, no doubt. So I, I'm sorry, I'm not making a lot of sense regarding hormones. I don't think I ever will. No, you are totally. You are. It's it is really hard, and I and we're also like conflating things because stress hormones are different than female hormones, estrogen, things like that. There, there's an and I don't frankly know enough to be able to like unpack all of that, but um, it's on the same system. They're not exactly the same hormones. Cortisol can change your estrogen levels and the way that it expresses itself and all that kind of stuff. So they, there's an interplay, but I don't want to make it sound like they're exactly the same, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there, but I think like, again, you know, the, when you say like, okay, I'm kind of subject to the various aspects of being female, there's not a lot of room there for knowledge or growth or change. You know, it's just like, well, here I am and I'm sort of a victim to this. And instead of identifying it that way, could you um, turn towards it with all of the emotional variety that, that comes with that, right? Which is frustration and confusion and also like curiosity and hope. And there's a lot more room there when you peel off that label of like, I'm a victim of my, you know, female chromosome or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I feel like I had another thing I wanted to say and I can't remember. Did we kind of cover everything? I, yeah, I, I, I want to talk about a couple things, though. <laughs> I read an article. I want to talk about the, the state that the world is in right now and um, how we need to look at everything we're feeling and experiencing and beating ourselves up about um, in relation to that. Mm-hmm. And I found a great article this week in the New York Times. It's titled, We Have, we have All Hit a Wall confronting late stage pandemic burnout with everything from edibles to exodus. Mm. And uh, the writer is Sarah Lyle, mm-hmm. L-Y-A-L-L. And there's just a couple quotes in here. Um, and one of them is from Margaret Warenberg, an expert on anxiety and the author of the book, Pandemic Anxiety, Fear, Stress, and Loss in Traumatic Times. Mm. And she says, a year of uncertainty, of being whipsawed between anxiety and depression, of seeing expert predictions wither away and goalposts shift, has left many people feeling that they are existing in a kind of fog, the world shaded in gray. She goes on to say, when people are under a long period of chronic, unpredictable stress, they develop behavioral anhedonia. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Anhedonia, Meaning- yep, yep meaning the loss of the ability to take pleasure in their activities. Mm-hmm. So it's basically so, low-grade depression. And like, so they get lethargic and they show a lack of interest. Mm-hmm. And obviously that plays a huge role in productivity. And this article was talking about productivity in the workplace primarily, but it's also productivity in the self-help space or the personal journey space, I feel. Mm-hmm. Totally. And this I thought was fascinating too. There's another quote from a woman named Natasha Raja a professor of psychiatry at McGill University who specializes in memory and the brain, said the longevity of the pandemic, endless monotony laced with acute anxiety, has contributed to a sense that time was moving differently, as if this past year were a long, hazy, exhausting experience lasting forever and no time at all. The stress and tedium, she said, have dulled our ability to form meaningful new memories just a little bit more. There's definitely a change in how people are reporting memories and cognitive experiences, Professor Rajah says. They have fewer rich details about their personal memories and more negative content to their memories. Mm -hmm. This means, she said, that people may be having a harder time forming working memories and paying attention 
with a reduced ability to hold things in their minds, manipulate thoughts, and plan for the future. We can't have any discussion about anything until we respect what's happening to all of us collectively right now. I listened to another podcast this week. It was Bethany Frankel's podcast, and she had um, Norma Kamali, the designer, on. And she had this, she was talking about her business and how her business had changed during the pandemic. And she said, we all have a COVID imprint right now and that's not going away. So like this is, we have to be even kinder to ourselves (laughs) in light of this. These are not normal times. Right. A hundred percent. I, okay. So three things really quickly that, um, anhedonia is an inability. It comes from the the root hedonism, right? Which you might recognize, which means pleasure, right? So anhedonia is the inability to feel pleasure. And it is clinically uh, like in a a low grade depression, like I said, Um, and it is really real and it's a neurobiological reality. This isn't just like you're doing it wrong. Or like, if you did this, this, and this, you'd feel better. It is a dampened, you know, effect of the, the connection to joy in your brain, which is why it's so important to engage. Well, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, I think also that I haven't read this article, so I need to read this article, but I was talking to someone the other night and they were saying like, you know, cause I was saying the same thing about, it's just been so uncertain for so long. And they were like, you know, I, I don't think that's the thing anymore. I think it's that it's like the uncertainty, like solidified and became certain. And so it's like, what are you doing next week? nothing. What are you doing this weekend? Nothing. What are you doing over the summer? No idea. I can't make any plans. Like all of the things that were activating and anxiety producing the beginning of the pandemic have become fixed. Yeah. And so, and what on a neurobiological level, what's happening. And this is, I think the reason why this, I would bet that this is affecting working memory is that you've got, we are under threat. I don't care if you believe in the goddamn pandemic or you don't, you're under threat right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, your limbic system is activated, your alarm system is going off. And that means that your working memory is not fully online. And so if you find yourself in the kitchen, I was like twirling around in the kitchen for the other day for like three minutes with a sponge. No idea what I was doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, where do I put this thing that's in my hand that I can't identify anymore? Um, it's a sponge. It goes in the sink. <laughs> But the reason that we're having those deficits in our mind is because so much energy is in the circuit of fear that it can't be in the circuit of working memory. Working memory is in the prefrontal cortex for the large part. And so it would be like the equivalent of like giving yourself like a really long, if I was giving you like addition to do right now, Mm -hmm. add 52,000 to 16,000 in your head while I talk to you about this really important thing that's going on in my life you would immediately notice like, I can't, I, I'm not operating at full level in either of these parts of my brain. We've been doing yeah. that for over a year. I know. And I'm, and I am, by the way, just like italicize underline star, this fucking horrified. I got an email the other week from a university. This is an academic situation Their Academics are trying to figure out what to call this year and how to account for it in their CVs because nobody published. And one of the reasons that nobody published is because publishing like houses were shut down for most of 2020. So it's not that you weren't doing the research or the work. It's that it was impossible to get anything through to publication. And so the academic world has responded not with empathy or with changing the the rule, but by saying, I I don't know if you're up for tenure, you got to figure out how to account for this. You didn't publish this year. I'm fucking (laughs) horrified that we yeah. are turning to this situation and each other like that is the, it's, it's the opposite of empathy. Right. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. <laughs> but I think That's like the fact example. that we have to like point this out and say like, Oh, Hey, 
there's a pandemic going on. This has been really stressful is indicative of like a real deficit in our culture to be kind to ourselves and recognize that what we're going through is hard. We don't even know when we're stressed out. No, we don't. It's become the norm. Right. Anyway, I'm ranting. No, it's okay. I was ranting too. But yeah, I mean, the letter writer had a lot of change too, right? She moved in the middle of this as well. Left yeah. her support system. Like, yeah, new job. If you drink nine beers, you're going to feel off for a couple hours, maybe the next day, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. If you change everything in your life, you're going to feel like you changed everything in your life. That's that you're not doing it wrong. That's just how it works. And you're doing it in extraordinary circumstances. Yes. Right. And it sounds like you're doing a great job. So we didn't really come back to self-compassion, but I think we did in some way. We all need to do it. We all need to get better at it. Stop being in an abusive relationship with yourself. You wouldn't accept that in the world. So why would you accept it in your own head? You know? Right. That's good. Do you have tiny little joys? I'm so fired up. I forgot what mine was. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I do. My tiny little joy is that um, in my striving for household perfection all the time (laughs) with cleaning and swiffering and you know, looking at Instagram, squeegeeing the shower door, you know, basically, you know, you're looking at the same four walls all the time and you see everything that's wrong. And my, you know, my can feel like a, 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 an obsession with um, making things presentable or, you know, pretty Mm -hmm. that no matter what I do, every time I bend down and look under a piece of furniture, there's a dirty tennis ball (laughs) that my dog has brought in. from God knows where (laughs) he's undermining your efforts (laughs) that is chewed up and filthy and slobbery. And it makes me laugh every time it happens because it's just like a cosmic reminder of (laughs) no matter what you do, there's going to be a dirty tennis ball under the bed. such a like I love that it's like such a like uh, uh, a reminder to like come back to the moment it is and you to know? play in yeah. a way yeah it's about playing it's about laughing it's about you know <laughs> this is not what's important you know right. and Sadie's gonna hide a dirty tennis ball everywhere <laughs> everywhere for as long as she possibly can um not intentionally just because that's what she does right. so it's um it just, it makes me laugh. It makes me chuckle every time I see it. And I see it a lot. <laughs> it's so great that you can like laugh at that and not be just super frustrated, you know? Oh, you have to. What am I going to get mad? Like she's, you know, she's a dog. That's what she does. Right. Like, you know, right. and she, she knows how to play and, right. and I should go be easier on myself and, yeah. you know, learn how to play and to not beat myself up for dust bunnies. Who yeah. cares? <laughs> who cares it's dusty it's fine signs right. of life you know yeah exactly so that's a great one thanks dogs i think know more about about the world than we do you know oh she's like uh, yeah like i i am amazed by her ability to get what she needs mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i need to play for 10 minutes yeah i need a belly rub right i need a piece of cheese like <laughs> I need to slobber. I need to like chase a squirrel. And, you know, it's just, she just doesn't, she doesn't question herself. She just gets what she needs. And, and, and right. And without the like judgment of like, "Mm, I had a, I had a piece of cheese two hours ago. Like I got to watch my, you know, like it's, 
I put a dirty tennis ball here yesterday. Like, so? <laughs> right. She opened the fridge. It's time for a piece of cheese. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They're brilliant. We all need to be more like our dogs. Yep. Totally. Um, okay. Mine is the TV show or the series called Worn on Netflix. Oh, yay. Which is about um, pieces of clothing. And that sounds really weird, but um, it's really beautiful, like little, I don't even know how to describe it. I should have looked up the like description. It's just like little snapshots into people's lives via pieces of clothing that were really important to them. Wow. And how that, so there's one about the, um, the saxophone player for Tina Turner and his, I guess she, at some point they were like in Amsterdam and she bought him a cod piece, a leather cod piece. <laughs> and he wore this over his jeans, you know, in the eighties or whatever. And like, that was his thing. And he became, he was the first like sexy saxophone guy. Oh, and he still has it and he still plays and all this stuff. And he talked about how this thing has been a, a fixture in a very like tumultuous life and, he talks about, it's just like, just stuff like that, where you're just like, oh, and also just kind of regular, it's not just all famous people. It's like regular people who are just like, oh, here's this coat and what this means to me. And, and so you get a little, a very intimate view into their lives through this one piece of clothing. Oh, I love that. It's so up your alley. You have to watch it. I will. That's fantastic. Yeah. And each episode has a theme and sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're sad and they're usually both. And like, it's just... You also get a really interesting view of like the way things are in different cultures, which is, oh, I always love that. So yeah, it's just, it's really like, it's a really great thing. Cool. Yeah. It kind of like does that balance between, it's not like mindless. It's actually really deep, but not in a way that like makes you work, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's not like yeah. reality TV mindless, but it's, um, it's just entertaining. Oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to watch that. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us in episode 13. We are going to keep, keep trucking as we keep getting letters. So if you want to write, um, if you want your story featured, or if you have questions about anything we talk about, um, email us at the traumatapes at gmail.com. And you can find us at the trauma tapes on Instagram as well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.